BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're tuned in to Grip It and Rip It, sponsored by LB's Meat Market. We're going to get started here in a second, but first, let's hear from LB's. Grip It and Rip It with Brian Scott Rippey is brought to you by LB's Meat Market. LB's, the preeminent butcher shop in Oxford, Mississippi, the place to go for any and all of your meat needs. Just right now, they've got the Lane Train Special, a six-ounce bacon-wrapped filet for $10. they got fresh seafood, grill packs, and a lot of different types of sausages. Put simply, if your grill is in need of meat, the only place to go in Oxford, Mississippi, is LB's Meat Market. Give them a call today at 662-259-2999. That's 662-259-2999. Stop by and see them at 2008 University Avenue. That's just across the street from Kroger. It's LB's Meat Market, your butcher shop in Oxford, Mississippi. Welcome in to Grip It and Rip It, the incredibly creatively named podcast. Today we're going to talk to Graham Hall of the Gainesville Sun. Graham covers the Florida Gators. We got into Florida's issues running the football last year, what he kind of thinks of Ole Miss's quarterback situations, Florida's expectations for the season, all kind of stuff. Uh, great interview, about half an hour long, got into a bunch of different stuff. Really uh, great stuff from Graham. Appreciate him joining us but before we get started i guess i'll kind of explain what this podcast is going to be uh it's just going to be kind of old miss at a broader angle each week ben's still going to be doing his normal talk of champions but on the days in between i'm going to be talking to different people we'll probably do an opponent centric pod early in the week we'll still do our fresh cuts presented by lbs on friday with uh, greg the meat sharp and then we'll do a post game pod on saturday reacting to whatever just happened in the Ole Miss game. Uh, it promises to never be dull. That is for sure. But anyway, that's kind of what to expect on this pod. We'll go ahead and get started. Uh, 
It is sponsored by LBs, and here is Graham Hall. All right, we now welcome on Graham Hall. Graham covers the Florida Gators for the Gainesville Sun. He was nice enough to join us. You can find him on Twitter at Graham Hall underscore. You can find him in the pages of the Gainesville Sun. I appreciate you joining us, man. What's up? Hey, it's my pleasure. You know, there was a time I was, I got to admit, I was one of the pessimistic ones who thought that this day would never come in a sense where we would really be talking about a game week. Even really, I think when some of the uh, more cupcake football teams in a sense had their games start, I was still kind of in a sense of I couldn't believe it. But man, we are actually here and there's a football game to discuss. It's happening at the end of the week, brother. I know it's 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 amazing stuff because I, I I doing this podcast with my co-host, we kind of split it up and made it a little more frequent during once the season is now getting going. But you know, for a while we were three days a week, just feel like it was Groundhog Day talking about the same stuff over and over again. And now you kind of have actual football to discuss, and it's 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 definitely never taking it for granted again. I was kind of in the same boat. I similar. I was just more always in the camp of like, I really don't know. There's no outcome, I guess, would surprise me. My gut always tried to tell me, like always kind of told me like, despite it being like, no matter how bad it looks optically, they're going to try to get something done because of what's at stake financially. Then you had that kind of weird weekend in August where it really seemed like it was down the tube, but we're, we're here. We've made it somehow. This is year three of Dan Mullen, which honestly I was talking to some people earlier in the week, just kind of around Oxford, just getting a feel for people's thoughts on the game. It kind of feels like longer. I would say from an outsider, like it's kind of hard to believe it's been only year three for Dan. And I know that's not necessarily a long amount of time, but he has had a decent bit of staff continuity. It seems like just what are kind of expectations going into year three? Obviously they're sky high. Has that changed at all with the, I guess, surroundings changing a little bit with the whole COVID thing? Well, it's a really good point. I think that, one, the COVID aspect is part of why I think it seems like longer than that, because I think there's a lot of people out there, myself included, who can sit back right now and say, oh, man, this entire year feels like three years. So there's that aspect, certainly. But you you absolutely made some great points about Dan Mullen and how he runs his coaching staff. I think continuity is the biggest word that you could use. Everyone in Mississippi who followed his tenure when he was with the Bulldogs is familiar with his allegiances to John Hevesy and Greg Knox, who, who was the interim head coach there um, for a game after Dan Mullen took that job. So if anyone, he was one of the latest additions, yet one of the most loyal ones in a sense. And, and that just shows you that they really have not had any staff turnover under him. They initially kept Jawan Sider, who's now still at Penn state, but since then there really hasn't been any changes. And I think that, not only has that become very peculiar, not just in the SEC, but in Power 5 football as a whole, where these coaches get extended and it doesn't seem to mean anything in terms of their long-term viability at the program, Dan Mullen has become, I think, in a sense, one of the more tenured coaches, not just in the SEC, because if you really look at it, I think right now he is the second longest tenured coach behind just Nick Saban, one of only two that have coached for double-digit seasons in the SEC. And and one, that just stands out to me and does not seem possible because I remember 
as a 13-year-old growing up here in Gainesville, seeing Dan Mullen having a, a very cherubic face, you know, being here 15 years ago. So to see to, to see him now have double-digit head coaching appearances under his belt in the SEC just seems wild to me. As for his legacy and or his tenure here in Gainesville so far, I think there are a lot of people who I don't want to say I definitely don't want to say running out of patience, but this year it seems to be kind of a, a prove it year in a sense for Dan Mullen. For a long time, Gators fans were pointing to that really easier schedule where it was just Georgia and LSU, two teams that had lost a whole lot from last season, and then the pandemic hit and every schedule gets rewritten. I, I think that. In a sense, the expectations have been changed a little bit because if Florida didn't win this season, there was kind of an expectation of not now, when. But this year, I have a tough time seeing so many things that were certainties happening this year. Strong defense in the SEC, solid conditioning, um, everything that we've come to expect is kind of going to go out the window because of this pandemic era. Yeah, it, it's going to be strange with, without a doubt, and 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 I just wonder how it like for, for from an Ole Miss perspective, it's kind of hard to put any sort of expectations on this season because Kiffin didn't really get any of his guys on the field for the first time, you know, until early August, and so it's just kind of like I think it's just kind of wait and see and see what it looks like. Whereas Florida, to your point, for as much pub as Texas A and M gets, and this being the quote unquote year under Jimbo Fisher. The team that really actually seems legitimately prepared to kind of take a step or launch, for the lack of a better cliche, you know, particularly in normal circumstances like pre-COVID, always seemed to be Florida. I mean, you've got the veteran quarterback coming back. You lose a decent bit on the defense in the six starters. But, like, this is a team last year that won 11 games, and one of their two losses was to... LSU and that game now looking back at it LSU beat the hell out of pretty much everyone they played and I'm not sure anyone really gave them a better game than Florida particularly considering it was in Death Valley I mean this kind of feels like this is like like you said if not now when I I guess my question at the end of all this would just kind of be if they are able to win the east and take that next step forward it's because of what? Is there any one particular aspect of this group that you're looking for this year? I think the biggest thing that is still a question mark for me in terms of this Florida Gators team, I, I hate to say running back recruiting because I don't think that that's necessarily fair. Because when you look at the roster, five very capable backs, one former five-star back in Lorenzo Lingard, and he's not even projected to be – one of the top two backs come Saturday. So that just seems kind of like a cop-out in a sense. But really, it's it does come down to recruiting for Florida. As much as Dan Mullen and the Gators love to say, well, our rankings are different than 24-7 rivals, so-and-so-and-so, they can't necessarily you know, stand on that when they are still losing games to teams that have a higher blue chip ratio, you know, what else are you going to put it on? You're not going to say it's coaching and you're not going to put the blame on your players, but that's really kind of one of those unspoken factors in a sense. I think the Gators understand that if they are going to crack the CFP, they're going to have to recruit like a top five team. And when you look at the rankings, the last couple of years, you have seen number one running backs, top running backs from the state of Florida, leave the state, whether it was DeMarcus Bowman going to Clemson last year, who was the top running back on Florida's board, 
or the year before Trey Sanders ending up in Alabama, despite Florida really going after him as much as possible and, and even taking his brother, Umstead Sanders, as a preferred walk-on. Um, actually, he got added to scholarship. I shouldn't even say that. Florida has to, I think, hit these blue-chip targets at a higher rate. Now, they certainly have by getting Jason Marshall recently, Corey Collier, two of the top guys um, left in the state this, that they could have got this class. But that really is the big thing for Dan Mullen and the Gators. Uh, the offensive line, everything we kind of just said about development, there were so many people that just expected that the offensive line was going to take a huge uh, leap from where it was last year, and that as a whole, Florida's running game would benefit. You know, I, I not to play devil's advocate in a sense or, or be a downer, but that was only really contingent upon that group getting a full spring and being back in the weight room and building chemistry and, and adjusting to those pieces that they added. The way the SEC did the schedule with the 20-hour rule and the ramping up and the ramping back down, teams really have not had as much time to gel, get the rust off, and, and have that actual improvement period that would be so necessary. So I really am curious if we are going to see a Florida team that looks much better from the one last year where the offensive line is much improved or the wide receiver unit, which lost a lot of personnel, four rookie wide receivers made NFL rosters, if that really is going to be uh, an issue for Florida in the passing game, I don't know. There is a lot more unknowns heading into Saturday. But if I had to say one thing that Florida can absolutely do to benefit this team in the future, they're going to have to start hitting those blue chip recruits at a higher rate. Yeah, you bring up a good point because I think obviously like Mullen's built up enough of a track record as an SEC head coach where and particularly with the brand of football he played at Mississippi State. It's kind of like, oh, well, they, can they run or they can run, but can they throw, which was actually not the case at all with that team last year well, it was they were at right at 300 yards a game through the air. And it was shocking to me to look back and I kind of double take seeing a Dan Mullen team average what I think 130 yards on the ground for a season. I mean, you would like you. I mean, in twenty what eighteen, it was it was right at it about two twenty and two twenty. I imagine they're trying to get back to some semblance of balance there, particularly since that kind of spread run option stuff is Mullen's bread and butter. Like, do you think they get back to more something like that? And I guess the second part of that question: How much of it was it Kyle Trask? Because did he get he had like a kind of a mild injury against Auburn or something, I want to say. How much did that affect what they were able to do in the run game, and do you see it changing this year? No, some really good questions. You know, if you were to, uh, you know, hold a weapon to Dan Mullen or something and ask him if he was a, a running or passing team, he would he would love to tell you that he was a split team. But the honest answer is that Dan has always kind of changed the offense's forte based around the strengths of his personnel. And what I mean by that is that if you watch Florida – Last year, they, they really did a above-average job in the pass-blocking um, aspect of the game. But when it came to run-blocking and, and creating a new line of scrimmage, getting pushed up front, Florida just for some reason couldn't do that. And, and like you said, was 13th in the SEC in running last year. And that was not the case at all in 2018 when they had Jordan Scarlett and LaMichael Pirine back and, and some leaders in the offensive line like Martez Ivy, a former five-star. That ended up making a big difference for this team. Um, you know, I think that, that we'll definitely see um, an improvement in that front. I think that you can point to, you know, I said the offensive line's improvement. One of those things that you can absolutely say is getting Stuart Reese is going to absolutely benefit Florida's offensive line. He's going to look, it's look, looking like he's going to play the right guard position, and Brett Heggie's going to slide over to center. 
to replace Nick Buchanan, the only guy who left that offensive line last year. So you really have a, a lot more guys with experience. So I do think the running back unit, unit um, will be much improved this year. Um, I'm sorry, you, you know, mind me the second question. I was so uh, focused on the first part, Brian. Yeah, I just do. Do you do you see that changing? Like, do you think they are able to get back to that this year? Because I just found that especially surprising for a Mullen team. And then the second part was just Trask. If I remember correctly, I can't remember off the top of my head. I want to say it was the Auburn game where he had a little bit of an injury. Maybe wasn't quite the same running the ball the rest of the year. How much did that affect what they were able to do last year on the ground? Or was it more of a line issue? Yeah, I think that real quick on the running, I think that you'll see Malik Davis, a guy who burst on the scene as a freshman out of Tampa, have a much better uh, year this season. He's got his confidence back underneath him. So I think that Florida now can count on him more when really it was kind of just a, a LaMichael P. Ryan show with Damian Pierce coming in last year. Now they really feel like Damian and Naquan Wright can, can really kind of form this trio of backs and hopefully Lorenzo Lingard can get in there as well with Iverson Clement. Uh, and then for Kyle Trask, you know, you, you saw a guy that played what, 10 games last year, came in in that Kentucky game to lead Florida back against a team that every Gators fan really just never wants to lose to and and hadn't for so long until recently. That Auburn game where, to my memory, it looked like his knee got hit um, and and turned, bounced back in that game. You know, this is not a knock on Kyle Trask, but he already was not the most athletic quarterback, and he was not going to fool you on a run um, too often. Um, so they really weren't doing that too often for him, but the injury certainly for those three weeks changed things. The Gators realized that they just had one quarterback behind Kyle, and that is never a situation you want to be in in a, in a normal year, let alone one in the COVID-19 you know, pandemic era. Um, but as for Kyle's improvement as a runner, you look at the physical transformation that he's made in the last year since. He's dropped about 15 pounds uh, looks to be much more quicker. And the word that Florida's coaching staff uses all the time is perfect coach speak. It's willing runner. So they don't care if, you know, Emory Jones or Felipe Franks or Kyle Trask or whoever it was, was running the ball. As long as they were willing to give the play call everything they had, they were confident that the play call as designed would uh, work in its favor. And it, it, as long as they trusted the play call, it would work out. So, Kyle Trask has worked on doing that a lot more, but as a guy who, a traditional pro-style guy that really didn't fit in, I think, initially to the offensive scheme, I I think that he's done a great job adapting, and I think you'll see him run a lot more this year because if he can do that, Florida's offense can add all these wrinkles in that are really going to fool teams and and really uh, give Dan Mullen a, a chance to get creative with his playbook. One of the stranger disconnects I've seen in the last little a couple of years of just kind of local versus national narrative is what's actually going on with Ole Miss's quarterback situation. And I get that part of it is Ole Miss was a four and eight program last year. Yes, you get a little bit of buzz hiring Lane Kiffin, but aside from that, there's not a whole lot of national attention on Ole Miss's program right now with where just where they sit and kind of the trajectory they were on after making the coaching change. But you saw John Rice plumbing last year. Once he was inserted in the lineup, I think that speed really kind of just captivates people in the sense that you see it on television. You're like, oh, holy shit, that guy's quick. But like the way that quarterback situation was mishandled last year, and then you go into this offseason, and really all indications, Kiffin and that staff won't say it, but pretty much all indications are that Matt Corral 
is going to start if I and he will probably take the majority of the snaps. I do think both will play because I think just Plumlee's skill set is too elite from a speed standpoint to keep off the field. But if you're talking about an every down quarterback, at least for now, Matt Corral is going to get the first shot at being that. I'm just curious how from what the coaching staff down there has talked about, how are they preparing with the quarterback situation? Because it just seems like there's a disconnect locally on nationally about what actually transpired, you know, in this pseudo offseason on this ad. Because Corral has kind of emerged as the guy and then it's become more of a what are you going to do with Plumlee? Is he willing to move to another position? Like, how is he going to be used? To whereas I still feel like some people that maybe don't keep up with Ole Miss as much think that Plumlee is kind of the guy they're building around, which is not really the case. A great question. And, you know, I'm actually kind of, I don't want to say offended, but I'm really surprised that the national intrigue is not there for this game when you not only look at the quarterback position, you factor in Dan Mullen's return to the state. I fully expect that, what, the 15,000 people are going to be booing him. Um, I think he's expecting that as well. And not only is Matt Corral going to be hoping to beat the team that moved on from him, whatever you want to call it, he moved Yeah, on exactly. Kind of the, that, yeah, the right classic, like, go in a different yeah. direction. And, and then you add in the other factor of a team always getting hyped up to play for a new coach because they want to start thing off on the right foot with Lane Kiffin. Matt Corral's emergence. I mean, there's a lot of Gator fans, I think, that have it wrong that think that Matt Corral is not going to become a legitimate SEC quarterback just because of the glimpses that they saw last year, which that is utterly ridiculous if you ask me. I think that he absolutely has a hell of an arm and is going to make it uh, with the right coaching staff around him as long as he continues to develop. It's clear from what I've heard, and, and you obviously have a lot more insight in this, that what he brings to the position may benefit what Lane Kiffin's trying to do a little bit more. With all of that said, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in the nation, uh, coach or player, who thinks higher of John Rice Plumley than, than Coach Dan Mullen. And we talked to Mullen yesterday, and he called him explosively fast. He said that he wasn't even playing quarterback when they saw him. He was at a camp playing DB, and... You know, this is kind of, I don't want to say this is ridiculous in a sense, but, you know, maybe this is Dan just trying to avoid any bulletin board material. I don't know. You guys can dissect this a little bit more, but he said that Plumlee was faster than former Gator C.J. Henderson, who just ran a 4-4 and, and raced Percy Harvin when Percy Harvin got to Gainesville. And there are some, there are some funny parts about that. I mean, C.J. ran a 10-point, I think, 400-meter dash in track in high school, and his brother – ran a 44, 400-meter dash. I mean, this is a very fast family. To say that Plumlee is faster, you cannot be branch, branching away from the diplomatic response any more than that if you're Dan Mullen. But you also, you're avoiding that bulletin board material. You know, I think that a lot of people are expecting Matt Corral to win the job, and they're going to forget about this guy who is extremely fast. And uh, Dan Mullen, I think, is making sure that he's not giving him any added incentive. But there are so many storylines, like I said, that, I'm just surprised that more people aren't interested in this game. It could actually get a little bit chippy for a game in Mississippi that's not, you know, an egg bowl. For sure. I mean, it's it's Mullen's return to the state. You have the Corral storyline, which I haven't seen talked about a lot, right? Because that was in my how quickly things change is the whole Matt Luke, Matt Corral marriage. That was his first, like, kind of blue chipper recruit 
after he took over the program full time. And it was like they both needed each other. Luke needed a spark and Corral needed a home. And, you know, then you go through the disaster that is last year. It is a fascinating storyline, to your point, that I think is being slept on a little bit. But it's interesting, like what Mullen, the way he talks about Plumlee, because let's like I don't necessarily see this playing out. This is 100 percent be just speculating. Let's just say Corral plays well. And he keeps the job. And Plumlee's at Ole Miss instead of Georgia because the previous staff, Rich Rodriguez, promised him a shot at being a quarterback. Like they, like Georgia wanted to move him to safety, and Plumlee's here to play baseball, and he's here to play play quarterback. Like that's what Ole Miss offered him, and that's why he chose it. But let's just say he were kind of had a change of heart and wanted to transfer. I am not sure there's a single other coach in the country, much less the SEC, that could unlock Plumlee for the lack of a better phrase than Dan Mullen. Like we, we were having a hypothetical conversation on the pod the other day. And if like there's one guy who would fit best with Dan Mullen, it, it's definitely John Rice Plumley. And I, it's just fascinating, like just a storyline to watch down the road. I'm just curious at how that it plays out. But I was just curious at how they were preparing for them because the disconnect between the actual like narrative and what's actually happening at the quarterback position has been fascinating to me. With that said, what's up? I think I probably know the answer to this, but just your real quick, your two big, like one biggest concern on each side of the football for Florida. Like if there's something that would be each side's Achilles heel, what is it? Oh, I, you know, I think that Florida's front seven on defense has a few question marks, more question marks than I think has been reported. You know, Dan Mullen yesterday said that no one had opted out. And 24 hours later, we, are hearing strong reports, inklings, rumors, whatever you want to call them, that Kyrie Campbell will opt out of the 2020 season. And that's Florida's, you know, redshirt senior starter at the nose tackle position. And the the guys next to him, aside from TJ Slayton, are missing a whole lot of uh, experience. Let's call it that. Mainly freshmen and, and redshirt freshmen next to him. And Obviously, I think the rush end positions, if you had to say a strength for Florida right there in the front seven would be there with Brenton Cox and Zachary Carter, um, Chris Bogle, several other blue chip prospects. But that's not all. The the middle linebacker position for Florida, I don't think many people realize how much Todd Grantham and Florida linebackers coach Christian Robinson are really going to have to coach that position up this year. David Reese was the man in the middle there for so long. He kind of got the nickname the professor because he always knew everyone else's play call, what they were supposed to be doing. If a young guy who had just subbed in didn't know what to do or was unsure about their assignment, he often knew everyone's play call. And he really wanted to be a teacher, still does. That's gone this year. And replacing him is Ventrell Miller and James Houston, two guys who played a lot last season but have not really – embrace that leadership role I would be I, I would be surprised if there were not defensive miscues in the beginning of Florida's games missing CJ Henderson missing David Reese missing Jabari Zaniga missing John Grenard is going to hurt Florida's defense more than people think so that would be I think the key to the game that I'm looking at right now many people think that Florida down here at least think that Florida is going to run it up on Ole Miss and that they're going to stop this Ole Miss offense I'm expecting a shootout. I predicted 45-33 earlier in the week. I'm seeing close to 70 points being scored in this game because I think that if you look at new coaching staff with Lane Kiffin, Dan Mullen and the Gators aren't entirely sure what he's going to do. You have offensive coordinators from all over. And then you combine Florida's defense missing some critical pieces, replacing some critical pieces in the middle. 
it's going to be very interesting. I, I think many people are kind of not looking at this game through the right lens. There is a world here, though. Corral hasn't really started a game since, I guess, uh, it'd be last September. So really right around a year, a little over a year ago since he got replaced with the rib injury by Pumley. Like, if Ole Miss struggles and does get blood out of the water here, it's because the amount of talent Florida has in the secondary just completely confuses and overwhelms Corral. Like, that, that would be the way I would see it. He really struggles. They turn the ball over a couple of times and then just aren't able to stop Florida offensively because I think Ole Miss's deal is, is they're, they're going to have a hard time generating a consistent pass rush. And if you allow Trask to just sit back there, he's going to pick you apart because the weapons are there. And so I, I just, I, but to your point, I do actually see a lot of offense happening in this game as well. Um. Oh, one other note I had for you, just going through the schedule where Florida, like take a temperature of the fan base real quick. Would, would, were Florida fans pissed, happy, indifferent about the schedule change? Because I was going to, through their their revised schedule, obviously the 10-game SEC schedule, and it doesn't really appear to be front-loaded or back-loaded. It seems pretty balanced throughout. Like, are people happy, unhappy about that? Like, what, what did they think of the reshuffle? I think it was a combination, if I had to, if I had to put a term on it, of relieved annoyance. Because if you remember, when the first rumors came out from, from Ross Dellinger at SINO, does a great job, uh, the speculation was that Florida would have to play not only Texas A&M, but Alabama as well. So you went from thinking you were going to play you know, Georgia and LSU in, in two down years for that program where they lose Sam Pittman and Joe Brady and the whole kitten caboodle in Baton Rouge. And then you add in Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher and make it a 10-game SEC schedule, Florida fans went from thinking that they could possibly win 10 games to staring possibly 6-4 and four in the face. So when Alabama was not added to that schedule and when they saw several other factors uh, on that schedule, I think that you could make the case that it is front-loaded in a sense. And I'm not just saying that to compliment Mississippi right here, but you look at those first six games, I, I think that you get to that Georgia game and then you finish the season. If, if Florida manages somehow to go 6-0 and through those first six games and then is playing their last four games of Arkansas, Vanderbilt, Kentucky, and, and Tennessee in the last week, you know, I think that there's going to be a lot of Florida fans who feel extremely good about that schedule. But I, I think that the SEC did it right here. I think that they based it right off of previous strength of schedule as much as they possibly could. But as we all know, I think politics probably came into play here. And um, there were some there were some games here that I think that 80, Florida 80 Scott Strickland wishes were at different dates or at different times or not, not away games based on some of those patterns that we've seen throughout the country. But I think the Florida fans are pretty happy with their schedule, aside from adding that Texas A&M game. If you had to ask me, what team I think is poised to make an LSU-type leap this year where they suddenly are ultra-competitive in the SEC West, I think that Texas A&M has the possibility of winning eight games this season. And that means that you're talking about Florida playing them in the third game of the season and then playing LSU and Georgia within a, a month span. So there is a possibility that Florida, this doesn't go the way that Florida fans see um, – there's a lot of ways that they could prove it this year, but I think adding that Texas A&M game, when we look back on it at the end of this year, that's really going to be the one that if they had to compare the two schedules before the pandemic, after the pandemic, that's going to be the one where they say, oh man, if that game wasn't added in there, 
what could have been because we all know what happens if you pick up an early loss, what it means for the rest of your season. Absolutely. That's a great point. That's kind of like a low-key, fascinating game early on in the season because it's two programs that are largely in the same spot in terms of where they are and then where they want to go. Last thing I have for you, just what are what's a successful season? You know, coming back during pandemic and everything, is it East or Bust? What is a successful season for Florida? I think that East or Bust is, is a little bit unfair just because I think that every team right now can – easily fall back on the excuse of oh what a weird year we couldn't prepare blah 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 blah. all the teams that didn't have to deal with all these other circumstances that were already ahead less ground to make up they're going to be better off well for florida what excuses do they really have a returning experienced quarterback continuity on the coaching staff a stable of running backs five stars at the wide receiver position and trayvon grimes at running back at defensive end with Brendan Cox, at linebacker with Derek Wingo, Kyer Elam. I mean, they te- technically are loaded if they wanted to call them that at every single position, while there certainly are some experience problems. I, I think that anyone looking at it through a clear lens could say that Florida has a great opportunity on their hands to go out there and win it. So anything short of winning the East, I do think is a disappointment when you look at it through fair context. And I think that the fair context not includes not only Florida situation, it includes what I said about Georgia. Never, not, not to my memory during the Kirby Smart era, have the Bulldogs, I think, been this vulnerable. When you factor in what they lost, like I said, with Sam Pittman going to Arkansas, I think that is going to be a huge loss for the Bulldogs that, that many people don't realize yet, because this is really going to have uh, Kirby Smart have to prove what he's worth. That loss actually helped the Gators in, in some other ways on the recruiting trail by Josh Braun, one of the top offensive linemen in this class, deciding to go with Florida rather than stick with the Bulldogs. I think that absolutely could come into play here. Um, I, I, the quarterback situation, again, in, in Athens, very uncertain, although I, I think that you know JT Daniels is, is more than capable. But if Florida ends up losing in Jacksonville by double digits, again, I think there's going to be a lot of Florida fans who are going to sit back and say what I said here. You know, if not now, when? This was the year. There were so many advantages over other teams, the experience that Florida returned. If Florida fans are really going to fall back on the excuse of, well, we haven't got our indoor standalone facility yet, and we're still in the middle of our $100 million renovations, and then we can recruit against Alabama and Georgia – there's going to be another excuse in a few years. So I am saying not now when, and if Florida doesn't win the East, I think that you could say that it is a, at least a minor disappointment uh, based on what the standards should be right now in Gainesville. Going to be fascinating to watch out. Graham Hall. I really appreciate the time, man. This was uh this was great stuff. Good luck to uh, good luck with everything this season. Be well. And uh, I hope to see you around soon. Hey, fantastic conversation. Great questions. Thanks so much for doing this with me. It was my pleasure. We got to link up shortly. Y'all travel into the game. Stay safe, stay healthy. Enjoy some football this Saturday. Savor it. Hope to do this again with you. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.